taking a look inside the lives and minds of some of the world's most inspiring thought leaders. I'm big on removing numbers as a way of telling us what to eat. That is simply by looking at your plate and eating an abundance of nutrients from vegetables and a little bit of protein. People living inspiring lives and motivating others. For her to pick up a cup of coffee and be sitting inside the, the, the cafe that's the first of, you know, what's meant to be a, a big movement, that was a pretty cool moment. Brought to you by Athletic Greens. This is the Inspiring Lives Podcast with Gary Birtwistle. I'm Gary Birtwistle and welcome to the Inspiring Lives Podcast, a show that looks inside the minds of some of the world's foremost thought leaders to discover their recipe for success. If you've been following our series, you'll know we've already had an incredible list of guests on this show. We've spoken with top experts in health, nutrition, performance, business, people like Todd Herman, Craig Ballantyne, Jay Ferugia, and this week is no exception. So welcome to the Inspiring Lives podcast brought to you by the most complete supplement for a better you, Athletic Greens. Today joining us is one of the world's most exciting young celebrity chefs. His name is Dan Churchill. Now, Dan is an Australian chef who now lives in New York and is regularly featured on television screens across America. His cookbooks have sold around the world and his widespread appeal has led him to be the first chef appointed as an ambassador for sports brand Under Armour and to companies like Qantas, Intel, Tourism Australia and, of course, Athletic Greens. Dan's always had a passion for cooking and all things outdoor, and he's driven by a simple mission, to use food as a tool to bring people together and enrich their daily lives. So Dan, welcome to the Inspiring Loves podcast. Mate, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. Do you know, I just want to start by taking you back a bit. Something you said when you were a young fella on the northern beaches of Sydney, you said that as a young guy, you didn't know who you were. Today, being an Aussie in New York, who is Dan Churchill? <laughs> yeah, I guess, I don't know, you, maybe it's because uh, at the time you didn't think too much about it, but you reflect on it. And um, yeah, I, I guess I look at myself now and what, what uh, I guess I, my, my brand and what I stand for, I guess that's, that's who I am. And um, I'm the person who is a bridge between performance and cooking. I don't say nutrition because... I think uh, nutrition can be almost still too scientific for some athletes and individuals. So, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a very passionate person in food and the ecosystem that is. Um, and coming to New York, I learned that about myself because in some ways I was always distracted by the beach and the active lifestyle that I had to not truly understand my passion for food and wanting to do good by doing good, if that makes sense. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm really finding ways to have an impact on the world in New York City through, you know, looking towards things like the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, and so um, I was 29 years old. Uh, and if I look back on if I was still in Northern Beaches versus where I am now, I'm almost like very fortunate to be like an ambassador of Australia in New York City talking about our awesome brand that is, uh, you know, food and cafe culture and, and what we are doing sustainably in Australia and, and finding ways to push that um, and in that time you're doing it, Dan, it's fair to say that there are more chefs who are looking to create their brand or their profile because there are chefs, be they professional or be they amateur, wanting to be celebrity chefs all over social media. You've got the actual celebrity chefs on mainstream media across the world. Why Why is it that you think you have been able to stand out? So in amongst all that mass of people trying to make their name, you have made your name. Why Why is Dan Churchill standing out? Yeah, I guess it's a lot to do with being consistent with my brand, the content and the message. Um, I, I think if you know what your true values are, where you stand and what you're trying to produce in and like that, that and vision, it makes it easier to create the path to get there. And so I was very fortunate to know that from a young age. Like I, I always knew I wanted to change the world through food. So now I've just got to be consistent with what I believe was uh, the way to get there. Now, I didn't want to stray too far. I didn't want to get in the way of pure effect, um, people really understanding what I'm about. And so all the content, all the things that I put out were always in the wellness bracket. Um, and obviously things over the years where the opportunities help produce uh, I guess tendency to convey the message, whether it be through awareness through campaigns or T 
TV, um, you know, other forms of media, everything has always still stayed core to my my value brand. So I've said a lot of no's to things. Um, definitely, you know, 10x on the amount of things I've said yes to, but that has allowed me to stay consistent with my personal brand. Uh, and this is kind of like one, one way to kind of put this in a quantitative understanding is uh, I'm, I'm the chef ambassador for under armor and this came about because they were looking for a chef and whenever they typed in healthy cook on google my uh i always just kept coming up on their um on their you know their google page so as a result hmm. uh, you know my my keywords on my seo my website all the content i kept putting out over the years was obviously doing uh, a pretty solid job so again just being consistent for so many years with the content i was putting out to be recognized uh, and then obviously the touch points of you know, the brands I've worked with and, and the TV shows that I've done and the morning shows and, yeah, there's a little blood, sweat and jizz <laughs> and cooking. If we talk about the TV shows you've done, it's probably fair to say that MasterChef Australia was probably, if you go right back, one of the launching pads for you. Yet what's interesting with that, Dan, is you went out in the last 10 but you were still in the middle of the pack. Now, most people who go out on MasterChef, now MasterChef Australia is the most watched cooking program in the world, 180 countries. And you go out, I think, number five or six in the final 10. And most people who do that, we never hear from them again. Like they're never, never seen again. But you've kicked on and are now making yourself globally, in particular in New York, why is that? What was the stepping stone between waving goodbye and stepping out the door and getting into the car? What was the stepping stone between there and Under Armour that gives you that leg up? What was it you did immediately that separated you from every other person who gets voted off and disappears? Yeah, great question, Gary. I, uh, I think one of the first things that like whilst I was in the house, because um, you're in the house for some, some many months, you have a you can choose to have either a lot of time of doing nothing or you have a lot of time to do something. And so I was actually, I, I had actually self-published my first cookbook, Dude Food, before I went you know, on MasterChef. So I kind of understood, you know, relatively the, the, the game a little bit, the cookbook game. So as soon as I was in the house and I knew at some point it was going to end, I had the foresight to just kind of write my next book. So as soon as I came out, I took the momentum of the PR that I get from MasterChef um, and then release my next book and have it out by Christmas. So that was quite timely. I needed to make sure that I executed the book. I also needed to make sure the book was around the brand that uh, was me, but also quite great for the consumer. Um, and on top of that, what I did was I was able to um, make sure, this is, interesting, this is the interesting part, I actually separated myself from MasterChef because I didn't want to get caught up in the carousel that was Dan Churchill of MasterChef. And I, I always had to say no to a lot of things to be recognized as Dan the Healthy Chef. So I created a brand of my of my own, I guess, my own personal brand and made sure that with any piece of media that I did, that was always mentioned. With any piece of content that I did, that was always mentioned. And the, the credibility extended through my master's degree and who I was cooking for and what I was talking about and uh, providing, I guess, results for as opposed to being on MasterChef. Now, MasterChef gave me exposure and I'm forever grateful, but if I was to continue finding my way using MasterChef as my PR, I would only ever be recognised as Dan's schedule for MasterChef. Really good, mate. I mean, that is absolute gold. At your age at that point, to think through next steps, to plan, strategize, and execute it, really. But what's interesting, Dan, is that people will – look at your feeds, look at your profile, look at the work you're doing, the cookbooks in New York, good looking young guy, got it made. But it wasn't always an easy road for you because there was a time where you got a contract in New York to set up uh, like an eatery and things were going great. And then suddenly they weren't going great. Just take us to that time. What happened? Yeah. Like uh, it's really interesting. So I was in a position where I had a, a job lined up as the chef of, um, I guess, this this uh, almost like this, this whole food hall concept. Um, I was putting a lot of months and many years into this opportunity, and um, 
Yeah, I, like I essentially had a vision, and the, and the strategy for my vision was like you know a two-year plan. Um, I've been four or five months on this job and saying no to a lot of things, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, as as it can be in any industry, but in this particular one, um, yeah, there was uh, delays and setbacks, and unfortunately, a lot of things were like union building, you know, uh, I guess rules in New York City particularly. Uh, and the original budget for this job um, has, well, it really blew out of proportion, which means, you know, a lot of people got uh, shafted and unfortunately I was one of them. And so all these opportunities that I was uh, saying no to um, and, you know, here I was thinking I had some financial stability and all of a sudden I didn't. <laughs> so I had to kind of, uh, I had to, I had to you know, really have a think, hard think about what I was going to do next um, and I had to move quickly. So, yeah, that was, a, that was a huge learning curve, huge learning curve. Tell me about the conversation you had in the mirror in the next 24 hours, Dan, because New York's a big place and New York's the mecca. And you've moved across there, put it on the line. You had these dreams and visions and then suddenly it's not happening. And a lot of people could look at that and go, I have failed. It hasn't worked. How will others perceive this? How did you, how did you approach the next 24 hours when you look in the mirror at Dan Churchill who had these dreams and suddenly for whatever reason they've been taken away? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm a very positive person, Gary. Like I, I'm optimistic, but I'm also realistic. And so my, uh, I, I can't remember where I read it, but I read somewhere that no matter what you have to remember you're number one and nothing gets done for you unless you do it. Uh, and that means that you can have the team around you at the end of the day, like your vision for what you want to do is ultimately, um, you know, it's up to you. And, and people can say this about even just personal brands, anything. And so I kind of had a, had a moment of like, you know, probably six hours of just absolutely, you know, this is rubbish, this is terrible. And then after that, I was like, okay, I've got my time because now I'm going to get to work. Now I, this proves to me why you can't just rely on anyone but yourself to get things done. And I was reliant upon another, you know, I guess restaurant to make sure that it got and running for me to get my job um, and I guess my uh, my strategy in place. So then I was like, well, I'll just do my own. <laughs> and that's kind of like, yeah. I'm just going to do my own. That's kind of, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of like where my head's at with these kind of things. I, I continue to say to people, if you really want to get something done, you got to go up and do it. And I, I think that's the, the following, you know, 24 hours after this, I had a bit of uh, yeah, moments to myself and then I had a moment to myself of just like, okay, let's go to the drawing board and, and, and do what um, you generally feel is what you're brought to do right now and then. So by this time, I'd been in New York for about a year and I kind of understand the market a little bit. Um, and so I, you know, I was putting together a food hall and in the food hall were a few different concepts uh, and so I took one of those concepts that I was going to do and then just turned it into a yeah, completely existing um, yeah, cafe, which we now have a fast casual in No Leader called Charlie Street. You put a, an Instagram post out and the, the, the copy was control the controllables. Do you find you are still in a position today, Dan, where there are things that you can't control that get to you? Every day, there's so many things you can't control. There, there's, there's so many things that at any point of the day you cannot control, and they can frustrate you, and then they frustrate you for however minutes till you allow them to frustrate you. But it's not until you actually realize, well, there's no point in me kind of getting upset and whining about this because I can't control the outcome. But what I can control are things that I can control. So the post you're talking about was the underlid of, um, you know, North Mathematic Greens, you know, container, but essentially that, that's my philosophy. Control and controllable. There is no point in any of us, you know, really getting too caught up and dwelling on the things we cannot control. We cannot control uh, so many things that come throughout our day, but what we can do is focus on the things that we can, um, and that's, that's where my head's at. Like, I can't control how uh, people, you know, for example, the restaurant... Not, not everyone's going to love my food. I have to be okay with that, and that's 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 anything. It's a subjective thing. But what I can do is I can make sure the food that comes out is absolutely spot on to what I believe is right. 
and that's that's the difference because <clears throat> you, you you know you you can't control how many um, you know how many I guess customers come through your e-commerce every day to an extent. What you can do is put out is put put your you know best eyes that you're going to be seeing in the, in the, in the ponds that you believe that your audience will be, and then this can be laid out in everything you do. If you are going to travel on a plane and you know that you're not going to like the food. Well, there's no case winding about what you do next time. You make the food that uh, you would travel with so that when you get on the plane, you have the food that you know you're going to love. But, you know, all these things that I say is, is just essentially own the responsibility. Own the responsibility of what you can control. If you know you go to a place you don't know where there's going to be a gym, if you travel for work, take your runs, maybe have a skipping rope, and learn how to do a circuit training in your room because you know when you get there, you may or may not have a gym, but at least you know that you can still do a workout. Uh, and that's the big philosophy of mine. Do you know, we see a lot of the cooking shows on television, which is an insight to, I suspect, in some ways, the life of a chef, sous chef, or a kitchen. And often, if not most times, when you look at a contestant, they will say, I doubt myself as a chef or they're walking up to the judges and it's all about what could be wrong. And even if they get a positive mention about their food, the, the, the dish they've put up, it's almost like a relief and they'll say, I doubt myself. How, how have you found your inner confidence, Dan, in the kitchen as a chef? Yeah, well, first I'll say, like, you can't doubt yourself as a chef from a cooking show. I'll be completely honest with that. No cooking show is like a kitchen. Um... You know, for, for one example of that is you are you know, you're on a set and it's not set up like a typical kitchen. Any chef who comes in on those challenges as a guest are also going to struggle because they're in a completely different environment. They're on the away playing field. Uh, they don't know. They don't understand time when you you know TV cameras and things in the way. So for someone to think a cooking show, even as master chef, is not is like like an industrial kitchen. It's not unless you're doing challenges specific to maybe putting dishes out, which happens like once every so often, um, uh, which is, you know, firstly, you know, MasterChef is that amazing show that brings families together. But to test you and say that you're uh, challenged as a chef, I get, but to say that you're not fit to be one, you, you haven't challenged yourself in the environment of what a chef is yet. And for me, I love cooking. I love, like, I... I love what cooking does. I love the nostalgic to it. I don't want to be a three Michelin chef. I don't want to be a three star chef. I want to be someone who can help create, uh, you know, be empowered to showcase people to learn basic skills in the kitchen, but also be empowered to understand where that food comes from, to build a voice where people understand the importance of soil's health and how that is being affected so much and causing so many things down the line. So my inner confidence comes from my passion and love for what I do. And just knowing, I guess going back, that not everyone's going to love what I do, but if I continue to push out, you know, I guess uh, specific learning opportunities and empowerment to an audience and new people and, and positive, happy vibes, which is exactly what cooking does, I believe that there's enough people out there that would want to get involved with what I'm doing. And that's that's simply it. Like, cooking is such a happy time. Um, I love what I do. And so... I never put any stress on myself to be the best chef. Um, I'm there to be the best person to be a voice of um, my mission, which is to change the world through food. I just want to turn this around and take an off-ramp and talk about you and your food. And I I want to set up a little story. I I was once in the kitchen during service for a very famous Australian chef called Tetsuya. And (laughs) I asked, do you you know Tetsuya, right? Yeah. So during a break, I said to him, what's your favorite meal or place to eat? And he said, late at night, he'd finish service, do the cleanup, and he would go to another celebrity chef's kitchen, who's a really good friend of his, the iconic Guillaume from Benelong Restaurant at the Sydney Opera House. And he said he would make Tetsuya a very, very simple bowl of spaghetti. Nothing flash, just a beautiful bowl of simple spaghetti and they would sit and talk. And he said, he's very passionate, you can see it in his eyes, he said, that's my favourite meal. What's that meal for Dan? <laughs> the specific one, yeah? You want to know what the specific one is? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, you know, it sounds like I'm copying that scene, mate, but um, I've always said this <laughs> in every form of media. 
the one that brings so many happy moments to me together, I, I you know, specifically long table, table conversation with my two brothers and my mother and father, the one dish that I was critiqued over for so many years because I'd make it every Monday night because uh, it was just so true to my family was my spaghetti bolognese. And so <laughs> for that reason, every single time I have pasta, it's this spaghetti bolognese moment of happy, nostalgic, serotonin-boosting love. Um, and so for me, that is just that is my favorite meal. Because obviously it tastes wicked, but on top of that, it brings out that memory of what it's like to sit at the dinner table with my family and have that moment of when I was really getting into cooking for the first time and how we all consistently wanted to, you know, critique each other a little bit and get that perfection out of us all. I've got a question on that, Dan. When you think about that meal, do you taste it? Do you taste it in your mind? Do you visually see it or do you feel what it's like to be in amongst your family and friends that present that meal? Because I'm always curious when a mystery box is presented and you have four or six ingredients. I'm interested in Dan Churchill's way of then establishing what you will do. Is this because I've heard contestants say, I could taste it in my head or others will talk about their palate or some will talk about the process of building it and what it feels like, the kinesthetic type people. How how do you go about creating? Yeah, I'm, I'm a much more just, um, how do I put it? I'm, I'm, this is where the northern beaches of Sydney comes out of me, Gary. Like, I'm super chill with this kind of thing. I kind of like, hey, I'm going to try to put this flavor together, and I know these ones usually go together. But I, I honestly, I love the art of cooking, and art of cooking is just in tasting. And there's moments where well, tasting and I invoke you know, for example, olfactory senses, the most prominent memory form of, um, you know, sense we have through our smell. So uh, for those listening that didn't know, the aroma from anything is what actually creates the best memory recall, and it's called our olfactory senses. So for me, I, I'll see a bunch of ingredients in front of me, and I'll have a look at what I can generally do with them, whether it be, you know, you can obviously uh, sear, uh, keep them raw, pickle, all those kind of things. But ultimately, I'll, I'll go back to memories of what I've done in the past or with, with like particular groups of friends or family members, and that will help guide my path. And I do it as I balance the flavors and come to terms with ways of um, what I was doing. Like I, I did my, I had a podcast this morning where um, the guest I had on brought me a mystery box from his farm. And he, he's a he's a founder of another fast casual in New York City called Dig In, which is uh, you know doing really well up to 27 stores and they have their own farm. But he brought me the box in, and in front of me he just planted these most, you know, colourful, abundant, different forms of um, vegetables. And I, I said, I have no idea what I'm going to do, but let's just chat. And so throughout the course of that that uh, podcast, I was talking and cooking, and at the end of it, I put together a meal that was in some ways a reflection of who I am. So I remember, I remember pickling lemons, uh, pickling fennels, uh, fennel bulbs in lemon juice. Uh, and salt for my mum, and so that kind of came out. I remember a memory of avocados with uh, sauteed apple being blitz. Um, and so then, and then kale and fresh fennel uh, salons in my new age of using the whole everything uh, came together. So like a, a mixture of my memory was on this plate without even realising it. And now I'm talking to you about it, it was, it's kind of evoking those memories. But I, I kind of just, I don't, I don't look at food too technically. That's not who I am. My, my, my dishes, all my recipes, everything that I put out for everyone to, you know, replicate is so they can actually replicate. And I don't want to make it too technical to the point where even I, my, my brain is, you know, too, um, is, is actually actioning too much because the idea of cooking to me is my therapeutic time as well. Do you store recipes Somewhere, do you have like an old scrapbook, old school with pieces of paper cut out and stuck in? Do you use Evernote? Is it in? No. How, how do you store them, or are they just randomly in your head? Oh, this is what's bad. I, I have them in notebooks somewhere. I do have them in Evernote somewhere. I've got them on Google Drive. I've got them on my desktop. I've got them on documents. <laughs> I've got them everywhere. And of course, I have them in my head. I've got thousands of recipes, and um. It's funny, you, you think after the amount of years I've done this, when a media opportunity comes up, you go, do you have a recipe for this? And I look through, I'm like, yeah, of course I do. I remember writing one out. And then I don't know where it is. And I have to go through all, like you would think I would set aside two days, 
getting all my messages, all my uh, recipes into one section, uh, making it easy to search. But I'm still yet to do it. I'll definitely do it. I'm just not that A type yet. <laughs> are you an orderly person in the kitchen, or are you a bit unruly? Uh, in my home kitchen, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm cooking. If I'm cooking to my mates, um, or if I'm cooking to my girlfriend, I'm I'm so relaxed. Like I'm. I'm you know, having conversation, chilling out. Uh, if, if I'm in my studio kitchen, I'm the same, generally speaking. I want it to be a home environment. When I'm in the, when I was working the line or when I was in the past, uh, even now when I'm in the Charlie Street kitchen, I'm very much, I'm, I keep everything clean, I keep everything squared off. If I'm not using something, I put in the compost or I put it away. Um, if I'm not, if I'm standing still, I'm not doing something, so I have to do something. So, it depends on the environment, and I think a lot of that is the leadership, leading mm. by example aspect. So I want the rest of my chefs and also my my uh, my team in general at Charlie Street uh, and my, my production team to know that like there's there's a time that we're going to be on and there's a time going to be off. Um, and if you're standing around, there's something else that you can be learning to do or do. And so when I'm at home, that's why I'm a lot different when I'm you know, at work. It's, it, it's the same for a lot of my philosophy in terms of like working hours. I work between nine and five specifically, and outside of those, uh, you'll be hard pressed to. Uh, if I'm not reading a book or working out or doing something else outside of, you know, um, my existing day jobs, then that that that's you know generally what I'll be doing. Being a Northern Beaches young guy from Australia in New South Wales, you would probably know the Oaks. Pub hotel. Uh, you would think so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you would know that in the front bar there is a massive grill. You walk in the door on the right hand side. You buy your steak. They put it in a plate, and you take it and you stand by the barbecue and you grill your own. You make you make you cook your own steak with a beer. Yeah, it's a good time. There, <laughs> good times, good times. On the wall there is a cooking instructions. And it says, put your steak on, depending on how you want it done, put it on, and then only turn it once. However, I was at Goodman's, which is a very famous steak restaurant in London, just off Regent Street, and I love my steak. The head chef took me down to the steak locker, talked me through it, took me into the kitchen. And he said, and I had observed it, his chefs and sous chefs are turning repeatedly. Turn, 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 turn. What's the Dan Churchill method? Is it turn once or turn regularly? <laughs> ah, it's a good one, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a repeated turner guy, and the the way it goes is simple like this. And this is the actual – a very minimal amount of my uh, cooking I talk about is scientific, so I will, I will go into the science on this one. So by, by – Creating a sear on the outside of your steak, which you should uh, salt 20 minutes before uh, you're cooking it, so you relieve moisture on the outside, so you get that beautiful texture and char on the edge of your steak. Uh, by searing the outside and turning every 15 seconds, you allow the residual heat to cook through the center um, and not have it so, and have the majority of the steak the, the same color all the way through. Now, what I mean by that is the edge of the steak will be, you know, a little char on both sides, but then you have the beautiful tenderness of whether it be a medium rare, medium, um, all the way through, a very consistent color. Now, if you were to do it where it's a minute on, or three minutes on, and you flip once, you're going to get, say, a, the, the char on the outside, and then a little more dark, uh, and towards the center will be a direct pink, and then a bit of dark and then a char. And so what that will do is actually make for a chewier steak. The very center may be medium rare, but the rest of it is actually overcooked or well done. So if you allow it to every 15 seconds, you present a residual heat cooking method and a full spectrum of tenderness as opposed to a chewier outside and then a really nice medium rare on the inside. That's the science behind it. And the reason why I'm like a 15 second turner. (laughs) When I was contacting you about catching up today, your email signature 
said, until next time, friends, stay colourful. I've got my steak. I've done it. I've turned regularly. I've got that. Tell me about the colourful bit. Yeah, so my uh, my philosophy on, you know, what to eat is all around colour. So I'm big on removing numbers as a way of telling us what to eat. Uh, as I said, taking away that science and um, bridging the gap between performance and cooking. And that is simply by looking at your plate and eating an abundance of nutrients from vegetables and a little bit of protein. And essentially the reason for that is the, the, the colour from the nutrients you get, the more dense the colour is, the more dense the nutrients are because pigments from the uh, fruits and vegetables, um, the more dense they are, the more nutrients they are because the pigments are then related to the nutrients. And so, therefore, the more flavour there is because the more nutrients there are, the more flavour there is. And so, on, on the most importantly, they're more flavourful. But the byproduct of that is contains the both insoluble and soluble fibre you need, all the uh, vitamins and minerals, the essential fatty acids, all these things that we need throughout our day uh, without having to bring up a calculator. Uh, and I mm. think that is so essential in this day and age where we constantly on our phones, constantly looking at ways to be digital. Uh, this is a great way to sit down to a meal and not have to think about anything but enjoying the serotonin, beautiful evoking colour that we see in front of us. And it's, it's actually true as well. You think about, you think about uh, Instagram, when you go on the Explorer page, Gary, and you scroll down and you see all these colourful, uh, you know, whatever it is, images, they stand out. They're the ones that stand out. So your brain naturally is attracted to vibrant colours. Uh, and the same thing happens when it looks down at a bowl or a plate of, uh, of colourful ingredients and food. It will release the serotonin, which builds the endorphin, so that all your cellular activity is being optimised for what's ready to go. Your stomach is churning, getting ready for the uh, enzymes to break down food. So it's, it's, it's actually a very uh, encouraging thing to hear that the science is backed by your body's natural state to enjoy colourful ingredients. And if we build upon that, Dan, you've said a couple of times, which I love, is that you, you know your purpose to bridge the gap between performance and cooking. Yet in the performance area with Under Armour, you are working with world-class athletes as their chef in order for them to perform and you bridge the gap between them performing and their food. And you said that to add restriction, you add stress. Just explain that for me. Yeah, so it's, 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 a, it's definitely you know, pretty common when someone tells you you can't have something, you automatically naturally have like a, not a vendetta, but you, you have this barrier of just frustration. So you think about it, like your, your mom and dad told you couldn't have a chocolate bar when you were younger, you naturally just get a little frustrated. So even when you're an adult, the same thing still happens when someone says you can't do this, the same thing happens. And that's a restriction element. And the natural restriction element to anything, if you're told you can't have something, you're going to have a negative reaction or response naturally to that, uh, that frame of mind. Now, the same thing happens is why I don't like to call things diets because diet evokes this concept of removing or restriction. I, I prefer meal plan much more simply because it's much more a positive state or frame of mind. So I also think about um, what we are meant to avoid and have less of versus what we're meant to have more of. And I don't like removing things per se with the notion that some of these world-class athletes are constantly active. They're so constant that they'll, you know, for example, you take Lindsay Vaughn, she's up the mountain, she's down the mountain, she's up the mountain, she's down the mountain, and then she's got to do the press, and then she's got to go home, she's got to be on a phone call for the media, and it's just constant. So the food aspect as much as it is nutrition, it's also the time for these athletes to chill out. And so in those moments, I obviously know that I've got to create these meals that are specific to their performance and ultimately their recovery. It's the biggest thing we'll focus on. But I also allow them to have certain things that I know will help them their state and frame of mind. Because to promote stress in these environments is to increase cortisol, which we know is a direct you know, impede to performance in general, whether it be cognitive or physical. Uh, and that's definitely something we do not want to do. So with all the things that I do deal with food and cooking, I always avoid ways that's a negativity. I always avoid, avoid ways that's a restriction. Uh, I may say, let's have less of this or let's swap this out. 
but I, I do find a way to make the balance uh, quite ideal. And it's also important to note that even with people who aren't athletes, the same thing can go. Um, chocolate is one of the most serotonin evoking ingredients. I'm talking dark chocolate, not milk chocolate. It's also rich in antioxidants, but you know, it's like anything. If you have too much of it, if you have too much of broccoli, you're going to overdose. So just, just to keep in mind that if you always don't have something and you're preventing your body from essentially something it's always not craving, but it's always loving, then you are always building up this negative stress uh, and, and ultimate negativity in general, which is not good for the hormones that we want that promote the positive benefits of cellular activity. So... You know, it's a big philosophy, again, to always, you know, be quite, you know, not structured but flexible within a structure, but then still offer things that promote the, maybe not so much the nutrient benefits, but the hormonal benefits, if that makes sense. So let me, let me ask you this, Dan. Let's, there's, there's, is there a gap between restriction and something that's unessential? Because Bruce Lee, the famous movie star martial artist back in the day, he said, it's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessentials. So the difference between restriction and actually taking something out to your point, which is probably not adding any value, the unessential. If you think about your own world, Dan, over the last three, six, 12 months, what's something that you have hacked away at? What, what's an unessential you've taken out of Dan Churchill's world that's, that's helped you? It's interesting. I've um, I've I've kind of uh, I've restricted. Okay, so in building the personal brand, and I said earlier about you know you know what your core values are and you know what I've really I've really learned to say no to even more. Uh, and there's opportunities that come up that you know keynote speaking events, for example, that talk about um, like I have one come up today that. I uh, used to probably would have done, and I, it's just about your time, your time, and and that would have been an awesome opportunity. But then I weigh up how much time I'm actually allowing for myself, my family, my girlfriend, and my friends in general outside of work. And if I'm constantly saying yes, that would have been me back in the day, like you know, just years ago. Now I'm being conscious because I'm restricting my work time, and it's allowing me to be optimal for my work time, but also keeping that balance. As I've gotten older, I really understand, like, no matter what I do for work, I have my true friends and family around me. That's, that's a win. And I've got such a beautiful support network around me that I want to look after that more than anything. And that means that if I'm constantly working, I'm constantly on, I'm not going to ultimately be happy if you know, business will come and go, but friends won't. And so it's really important to kind of keep by. I say, I say nutritionally, I probably cut out just because of um, like red meat, I think I've restricted a lot of, particularly in America, I was kind of terms with um, the ways of farming here. We could definitely have some great farmers here in America, but Australia just had some of the, and New Zealand had some of the grass, best grass-fed beef uh, that I'm just proud to say we had. But also I'm becoming increasingly more aware of the, obviously, environmental impact that red meat's having. So, um, I really don't eat a lot of that at all, and I, I, I really stay more focused on sustainable fish opportunities that are more local um, and, and things like that. We've we've talked about your brand a lot during the show, and I've got to say, it really is it's gold how you have created your own brand and stayed true, which is the other part. You stayed true to your own brand, Dan. And the question I've got is: Pat Flynn wrote a book called "How to Be Better at Almost Everything." And the premise of the book was skill stacking. And he said, today it's about being a generalist and being pretty good at lots of things. And if I look at Dan Churchill, you've got exercise physiology. You're obviously heavy into the science of wellness and how that all works for us for performance. You're a great chef. Your branding is very strong. What's the next skill that you are looking to stack on top of Dan in order to be able to see the next couple of years? Is there something that you are thinking about or learning about as the next skill to stack on top of what you're already very good at? I want to continue what I'm doing as and be more consistent with that. I know I can take Charlie Street 
uh, and use my personal brand to grow them both. I also, I'm, I'm definitely interested in the e-commerce world, but I think I can have more of an impact on being on more, um, I, I, like, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy keynote speaking, but the skill of working specifically with boards and, uh, you know, commission groups that are looking at ways to impact positively uh, on the environment, I, I, it's, it's, I know it sounds like it's more of a, it's, it's a skill I generally want to have. Um, I mean, I want to, I want to make sure that my handstand and is getting really good. I've been practicing that a lot. <laughs> um, I want to make sure that my mouth on time goes under three fifteen this year, which I'm working towards. But if I was to say the skills in the business world, uh, yeah, look, I, I think I'm so focused on taking Charlie street to the next level and, um, doing that, even though like, it's interesting, I have a personal brand, but, really exploring my entrepreneurial spirit uh, in New York City of building a brand that's a message-driven, fast, casual, and all the elements around that that would help it grow, whether it be building a farm, um, this type of service or offering in-store versus out-of-store, uh, the brand itself, what it stands for, the production team, and what they're looking at to build, um, the message that we're also talking about, how all these things convey the right messages, ultimately underline the right umbrella um, vision. So, you know, I, I think right now I'm so focused on uh, executing that that, you know, one day it could be uh, right now it's a very small production company. It could be growing my production company to be a way of being a figurehead behind, um, you know, maybe, yeah, on demand uh, on demand um, content that is really shaping our, our way to, say, the 2030 UN Sustainable Development Goals. How's that for you? Gold. That's, that's taking that to the bank, mate. <laughs> <laughs> after to wrap this little shindig up after all you've been through so far in your career Dan when you sit and reflect between sessions today what's the proudest food or meal moment you've had to date I've been fortunate to cook for some awesome people um, some people I've you know, seen on the big screen and um, some athletes that are just incredibly inspirational in general. But I would honestly say when my mom had a coffee at Charlie Street in New York City, so I flew over for her 60th birthday. She looks like she's 40, by the way. So I'll just that one. Everyone knows that she's 40, right? Um, she, yeah, I think that was a really cool moment because, for one, mom's obviously in Australia, and so to tell her, what I do is, is one thing. For her to see it is another. Um, you know, unfortunately, mum never sees the media side too much. She, um, even the family in general, they, they see the end result. They don't see what I do before. Not that they don't know there's a lot of work to be done, but for, for her to pick up a cup of coffee and uh, be sitting inside the, the, the cafe that's the first of you know what's meant to be a, a big movement, that was a pretty cool moment because – I remember when I was younger, she was always looking after me and for me to buy my mum a coffee in my own, you know, cafe, that was, that was pretty cool, I must admit, because she's sitting there and she's like, you know, sitting all cute and whatnot and, um, I don't know, that's just a, that's a it takes a lot to go to a restaurant, it takes a lot to go to a restaurant in New York City and then to have your mum come over and actually pick up something as tangible that you want to give her for a, a long time and have it, that was a pretty big moment for me. What's the greatest compliment? you'd like someone to give you, Dan, whether they're doing it to you or saying about you, what is the greatest compliment you'd like to receive from somebody? Really tough question for an Australian, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like, like this is really slightly off topic, but I got a compliment today indirectly. I've been doing Charlie Street's catering service and I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, uh, we haven't really done a lot yet, but I'm doing the actual service out. And to the point where today we got uh, an email and quite we're saying we've been from a company, it was WeWork, wanting to partnering for one of our new locations hmm. with an awesome catering company. And they said, we'd love to use Charlie Street. So the fact that they reflected upon us as a catering company was a compliment to me because it means that I'm, I'm like, as I build this brand and one of the service arms, it means that what the vision I'm putting out there, the message and all the, uh, you know, content, everything that I'm putting out there, it's obviously working for these people to see that. Uh, that's kind of like, for me, that's affirmation, right? That's, that's, uh, that's a compliment. But 
I guess on a personal brand level, and that's more of a thing about, I guess, me executing my tasks, but on a personal brand level, the greatest compliment I can have would be, and it, it's actually happened over time, it's, um, when a mother or a father has come up and said their family is now happier through cooking together as a result of the food and the movement that I've um, constantly talking about, that that is pretty powerful to me because ultimately, you know, changing the world through food is a very generic statement, but it all starts at the dinner table. Um, and that could be any form of dinner table. It can be in uh, Africa, it can be in Thailand, it can be in Australia, it can be in America. But when you're having an impact on a family like that um, and creating a happy moment, that, that's, uh, that, that's so feeling to me because that's why I love it. That's why I started. I started because my family and I love cooking and, and talking food together. So to see it help others, that's, that's probably one of the greatest compliments um, I can receive because it's affirmation that what I'm doing and setting out to do um, is working. Final question for you, mate, before we let you get back to your work there in New York. What do you want that you don't have yet? <laughs> Ooh, what do I want to do? Yeah, how long do I We've got plenty of time, mate. We'll just keep rolling. The, the only things I can really think of that are wants right now are just wants, and they're not needs. So I'd be like, you know, I'd love to, yeah, I, and that, that's something that I just don't really live by. So it's really hard for me to talk about it from a true, passionate way. Uh, ultimately, I want 100 stores of Charlie Streets. That means I've had an impact on the greater community, less aside from the success of the business, more the impact that I'm having, which means I've probably built a couple of farms uh, and created academies that help strive for, you know, greater goodness in those areas. I'd love to say that um, I have a consistent show on uh, one of the, uh, you know, networks um, on demand here in, in teaching people where original food came from and the story of how they do it. The uh, respective uh, countries built upon a single ingredient. Uh, that's not a thing. But again, like that's these aren't things that need to happen. It's a case of me going, well, this is something I want to happen because it means that I can be the person who's single-handedly, no, sorry, I'm the person who's not single-handedly doing this but showcasing the message of what people are about. And then what have I, and I'd love to be on boards. This is actually, you know what, Gary, this is it. What do I have that I don't have but I want? I want to be on a boards of people and talking to the people who make the biggest decisions, the CEOs of the, the Nestle's of the world where I can uh, have the greatest impact in telling them on how to build our food and agricultural game and, um, yeah, essentially create a sustainable life that we can have uh, and they're the ones that can make the biggest impact because they're the ones that make the decisions. Ultimately, if I, if I can get to be on the Young Global Leaders uh, Forum, that'll be a huge step because they're the people I'll be talking to about this every uh, couple of months, which would be awesome because it's action. It's not talk and, and ideas, it's action, which is what I really want. Well, Lord knows we need it, mate. So I think there is, with that dream in mind, that passion, I don't think there's any doubt that we, we need it. It's there to be taken. We need a voice. We need someone like you who's there pushing it. One, one final thing before I let you go to go and chase that dream. We started on cooking. It'd be remiss of me not to finish on cooking. What is the most (laughs) understated yet profoundly important ingredient to bridge the gap between performance and cooking that we should include in our cooking today? If there's one profound ingredient which is pushed aside and not, not acknowledged that is in your lane of bridging that gap, what's the ingredient? Oh, wow. Um, so the ingredient I can think of specifically, uh, it helps in a number of ways, both for flavor and for balance. And I talked about this on my Instagram yesterday. Um, it's not how much, it's not how many nutrients are in an ingredient. It's how many nutrients your body absorbs from that ingredient. And if your body is in an imbalanced state, so if it's too acidic, and you take on an acidic ingredient, despite whether or not it's one of the best things for you, your kidneys will reject it because it simply is an overdose of acidity and will pee out most of that ingredient, meaning you're left with 
you know, a fraction of what that uh, ingredient's nutrients was meant to be. So we in the modern age have a very, uh, our Western society, a Western diet and a Western meals have a very acidic nature diet compared to what we once did. And as a result, we are less and less absorbing as much as what we used to. One ingredient that can make it more alkaline, but also extend the flavor of our meals on our palate is lemon. So a lemon uh, is something that makes flavor last longer, along with uh, rice wine vinegar, red wine vinegar, white wine vinegar, balsam vinegar, anything acidic in nature, interestingly ironic, anything acidic in nature um, keeps the flavor staying around on your palate for longer. But lemon is also more alkaline-based. So for healthy, it's making sure you sustain the right nutrient absorption. Make sure you add lemon to a lot of your dishes. Have lemon water, lemon soda water, those kind of things. Um, and, yeah, just have a consistent understanding of how much acidic uh, natured food you're having. And dairy is one of them. And one example I will leave you with, Gary, is that if you had 50 grams of broccoli and 50 grams of dairy, say, you know, yogurt, um, and say there was, you know, less calcium in the broccoli, the same amount as there was dairy, but as a result of being too acidic uh, in terms of your existing intake and dairy is quite acidic, you would pee out most of the dairy, meaning you would naturally have much of that calcium left to absorb. However, with broccoli not being acidic, you would actually be able to consume most, if not all. And so that's where lemon can play its part in bridging the gap between performance and good. Mate, that's uh, a great piece of gold, or should I say lemon, uh, off, off gold, <laughs> lemon. Uh, or the French would say lemon to leave us with. Uh, Dan, you, this has been terrific. I've really enjoyed talking with you the healthy chef bridging the gap between performance and cooking. You're true to your brand. People will want to find out more about you and stuff. Where do you send them, mate? Maybe we usually send them to the website or my Instagram. So the website's uh, danchurchill.com. Um, or yeah, from all my podcasts and all my Instagram content, you can to at dan underscore churchill on Instagram. Well, from one Aussie to another, this has been an absolute treat. I can say that anybody in Australia who has seen your work and knows of you is terribly proud of what you're doing, mate. So um, all power to you. Keep fighting the good fight. And um, thank you so much for joining us here on Aspiring Lives. It's been awesome. Appreciate gaming. So that's today's show. There are loads more incredible guests in the weeks to come on the Inspiring Loves podcast. You'll find all the show notes at athleticgreens.com. Next time on the show, I'll sit down with writer and fitness warrior Emily Abate. Emily writes for Runner's World, The Wall Street Journal, Men's Journal, and GQ, and is a five-time marathoner. She's a triathlete, a run coach, a spin coach. However, it hasn't always been an easy ride for Emily, who clocked in at over 200 pounds. So this is a true story of transformation. That's next time on the Inspiring Lives Podcast. The Inspiring Lives Podcast, brought to you by Athletic Greens. New episodes out every other Monday morning. Tune in and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or your favorite podcast platform.